Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Goster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more red dead. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front to take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Happy Thanksgiving to you and happy Black Friday for a very special edition of today's version of America in View, where we are helping the woke still find things in America to be thankful for. Uh, Tremendous Thanksgiving holiday getting started this uh, weekend, Matt. It is great to have you back in the studio. You have been jaunting around Iowa and Nebraska. What are you seeing out there in the Midwest these days? Well, it's not too different from the way it is in Florida. Um, but there is, uh, some differences. One of the things that I had the opportunity to see was some presidential, um, presidential primary commercials on TV, uh, in the Iowa markets. And it's just always interesting to see, we talk about this stuff kind of long distance, you know, we're seeing the debates and we've, we've certainly talked about everything going on with that calendar, but then to be in a, in a, well, you know, the first state, Iowa, it's a caucus, not a primary. So it's not technically the first election, but just to see the presidential activity out there, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. If you told most people in Florida right now that there's a major presidential preference primary coming up in March, which is just basically uh, 90 days away, uh, not quite, a little bit more than that. But at this time, usually if it were like on a regular election calendar, people would be going crazy right now with the ads and the door knockers, seeing the yard signs everywhere. We don't see any of that here in Florida. Uh, it really has been relegated to Iowa and New Hampshire at this point. Yeah, it's just a characteristic of the the way that our primary works. And, you know, these early states dominate it. It um, starts out with those early states. It gives them an outside influence, but it also gives opportunity to lesser candidates who are not as well funded to be able to campaign on a grassroots basis, get to know people, shake hands, all that kind of thing. And, and see if their retail version of politics can compete with some of the better-funded candidates. So it's it's an interesting part of our system, for sure. Well, I tell you what, there's another vicious contest that's really been more of a focus here in Florida today, which is all of the shoppers lining up to either hit their computers or go out to the retail stores and try to grab their Black Friday deals. I, You know, Matt, I don't understand how they're doing it because uh, after yesterday's meal, which you and I both were able to – eat together. Um, my goodness, I am, I feel like I gained 15 pounds. Uh, but it was pretty good. Are you guys going out doing any shopping this afternoon? Or are you going to stay close to home? Uh, I don't think I've ever shopped on black Friday. I certainly don't plan to start today. Mm-hmm. Um, a neighbor of mine, uh, the, the Friday after Thanksgiving to me is one of the better days of the year if you don't participate in this insanity because it's just a day when nothing's going on. It's one of the few times where you have this like almost sacred day that you've had your holiday, uh, but then the phones aren't ringing. You can really enjoy the day off. Um, I had a neighbor when I lived in Virginia. So apparently the markets, the the stock market can't be closed for more than three days in a row. That's Mm -hmm. like a law that happened 
after the Great Depression, something like that, so that you know people could have the opportunity to trade. And he worked for a financial um, house, and so he he would always volunteer to work on Friday um, because he said they would just it would be a skeleton crew and they would just go in and play cards all day. It was basically like a party day at the office. Yeah, everybody's more, trying to sleep off their food coma. Yeah, that that's more my theme for what I think Black Friday should be all about. Yeah. So Florida has an interesting Thanksgiving history that I found a little tidbit on that I just wanted to throw out there to you. But uh, we constantly talk about what or how great it is to live in the free state of Florida, how much better our state is than every other state in the union, which has been validated by the fact that we have more uh, in-state to in-state migration to Florida uh, than any other state in the country right now. But did you know that Florida was actually the site of the first Thanksgiving? Well, I happen to know this because one of our clients talked about this uh, uh, last week. I did the research. Yes, and uh, I, th- I think you should share that with our listeners. So 54 years before the Pilgrims celebrated their Thanksgiving in Massachusetts, some Spanish conquistadors and explorers landed in the state of Florida. They claimed Florida for their own, for God and for throne, uh, back uh, for the Spanish crown. And they actually uh, joined with... Florida uh, Native Americans or American Indians uh, to have a Thanksgiving meal to thank God for safe passage across the Atlantic. Historians have noted that they may have had things on their menu that was very different than the traditional Thanksgiving fare. They mentioned specifically oysters, clams, and even alligator, which are things that we still find on Florida menus, but uh, obviously I don't think they're eating those things in uh, either Massachusetts or anywhere near the original side of the pilgrims thanksgiving so what meal. you're saying is that we need to have a new florida thanksgiving menu become traditional i think so i think it would be much better to sit around and have seafood than have to eat turkey and dressing and everything else but you know maybe some people already did that i think we had some scallops yesterday so well, yeah maybe instead of you know replacing one with the other you just combine it and add to it and then you have even more food yeah all right so i like that but anyway for our listening audience you can take pride in the fact that the first Thanksgiving in America actually was celebrated in Florida. Another great feather in the cap of Floridians. Um, Matt, there was some big news last week. You guys weren't here. The Seminoles played, speaking of uh, Florida Indians, the Seminoles played a uh, great game against North Alabama. One of the uh, casualties of that game, though, was Jordan Travis, who had a grotesque leg injury. It was awful. I feel very badly for him. It was definitely a season-ending injury. Uh, I don't think it's a season-ending uh, incident for the Seminoles. They have such a great team this year. But we got a lot of football being played this weekend, and I know that a lot of our fans are being uh, psyched up about that. How are you rating this Seminoles versus Florida contest this Saturday? Yeah, that, that game last weekend, uh, I was watching that on the CW. I think that's the first sporting event I've ever watched on the CW. But um, watched it happen. It was terrible. I remember as, as uh, you know, and Travis – clearly was trying to spark the Seminoles who had let uh, North Alabama get out to a lead 13 to nothing. And uh, I remember as he was running, I, I said to Lauren, I said, you know, don't get hurt on this play. And like, literally that's what happened. Um, so it was traumatic. It seemed to rally the Knowles, you know, they sort of came back together in a strong way and ended up with a, with the impressive win that everybody was expecting. Um, but what a terrible thing for him. Um you know, Jordan has expressed faith, uh, his personal faith this year in some interviews, and I certainly hope that that's something that he draws on now. 
he certainly has a future. Um, so, you know, he's there, there are a lot of things to hope for for him on a personal level. Well, he's got a future. I thought one of the nice things about an injury, if you had to have a nice thing about an injury, was that the entire championship team of the Seminoles was present, the 2013 championship team. Yeah. And I thought that Jameis Winston has said some of the uh, better comments that I've heard him make over the years. I was a big fan of him as a player. Jameis has had some troubles in his private life, but he still was one of the most uh, dynamic FSU players we've ever had. And uh, his encouragement to Travis, really the entire uh, championship team's encouragement to Travis, I thought was something that was very nice and was encouraging him and uh, I think would be something that he remembers for the rest of his career. I agree. I completely agree. So, you know, Seminoles play tomorrow. Uh, you know, last year we played Friday. Florida State played Friday. And uh, it is interesting to me. I I don't know if there are more Friday games going on these days than there were in the past, but like um, Oklahoma's playing today and there's some other teams, actually quite a few teams playing today. So then Florida State plays tomorrow. Uh, they have had some injuries. The Gators have had some injuries too. So certainly hope that whatever, whatever um, difficulties or trials that the Seminoles have gone through uh, this week that they will be in good shape and that it'll be a big win. Yeah, I think it, you know, look, I, I think it will be a big win for them. I think Louisville uh, for the ACC championship will be a tough hurdle, but if they can get through those two, surely we will be in a great position to be able to play in the, um, in the big uh, championship series uh, early next year with, especially with Michigan and, and Ohio having to, or Ohio state having to face each other, I think we'll be in good shape. So we'll see. But Look, we could talk about football the entire rest of the show, but there's other good people over here at this station that talk about football. We talk about politics. And uh, we've got another big contest coming on that I think people sometimes find to be a bit confusing, but I thought maybe we would take today, Matt, to begin to talk about the Republican presidential preference primary contests that are going to be happening early next year. It's going to be concurrent with the Super Bowl. It's going to be concurrent with some of the national championship games college but I don't think people really understand how it works it's different from the electoral college and so I'd like to spend a little time talking about where Florida fits into that and where our uh, early states are and and maybe even talk about whether Florida even matters by the time we get to the end of the show so you guys stay tuned we're going to be talking about the presidential preference primary process and how we're going to pick our Republican nominee stay tuned Never fear, Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. Making common sense cool again. It's Matt and Brett Buster with America in View. Happy Black Friday, everyone. Matt and Brett Doster, America in View. We're talking about... Uh, well, we're about to talk about the Republican presidential preference primary, which I agree, Brett, is confusing. It's confusing to me, even as someone who works in the industry. Um, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you about some more Thanksgiving stuff. One is just, so I did a Google search earlier this week, and um, the Google search term I used was history of Thanksgiving. And uh, the first few results you get are fairly predictable. Um, you know, you get like... Britannica, History Channel, mm -hmm. those kinds of sites. But then you get to the Turkey, traditional food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Squanto, et exactly. Yeah. But you get to about 
the fifth search result, at least for me, and you start getting this kind of woke propaganda, which is all too common. Any Anything that has anything to do with indigenous peoples, First Nations, American Indians, whatever the terminology is that's most correct to use these days, mm-hmm. you start to get this um, corrective revisionist kind of content that we're all supposed to think. And there's always this like cloak of shame that everyone's supposed to feel. So the headlines you start to see are, the true dark history of Thanksgiving, <laughs> you know, and then you get a couple more right. down and you get more of like the true history of, of Thanksgiving, the myth of Thanksgiving, the myth of the Thanksgiving story. Right. Um, the, you know, the real, the real history of Thanksgiving is darker than you think <laughs> and so on and so forth. And what, what you get when you click into these stories is all the same kind of, uh, CRT nonsense about oppression and oppressors. Um, talking about introduction of diseases, warfare, stealing lands from people, so on and so forth, which, you know, there's always a blend of true facts in some of these stories, but the overarching propaganda is all about upending the story of America and basically telling anyone who has a traditional view of our nation's history that you're wrong and you need to correct it. You need to do it with a heavy sense of shame. Um, I think for the conspiracy theorist out there, They may see this as big tech engineering, the content that we see. Uh And there may be some of that, but I think I'm afraid that what this really reflects is these are the, these are the links that people are clicking on. These are the things that are getting results and which the Googles and other search engines of the world are, are bringing up to the top of the list, which is just a commentary on where we are as a nation that, that people like this story. There's a certain element out there, uh, which we call the left, but increasingly is mainstream which really likes this narrative and really likes this corrective story of of um, just rewriting the history of our nation and putting it into this world in which the white man or the European is always the bad guy, has always done horrible things. And it's never really clear what the solution is. It's not like, well, we're supposed to leave now. Um, I don't think anybody's arguing for that. But it always ends up being just these overtones of, uh, you know, of shame and repentance and, and all this sort of thing. So it was a little bit of a discouraging aspect of my research into uh, the history of Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's not uh, unexpected. I think that the left, particularly those who've been more radicalized, have been working on this you-must-hate-America narrative for many years now. And anyone who reads the Thanksgiving narrative will walk away with a feeling of, uh, I think, sincere appreciation for what these pilgrims had been through. Uh, Most of them had come to the new land just looking for religious freedom or looking for some economic freedom. And they showed up on the shores. They had been through significant ordeals, storms, disease, uh, starvation, and here they are at a moment when they all realize that most of them are still alive, that they've been able to make it, that it's been by the hand of God and the hand of providence, and they have a joint dinner. What's there not to like about that uh, About that narrative? Most of us have things we can relate to in that way. I, last uh, week on the show, Matt, I talked about our top 10 Thanksgiving list, and I said that everybody should make a list because you're going to have dark days in early 2024 and then pull it back out that list of things to be thankful for and let it encourage you. Uh, these 
pilgrims were encouraged. And uh, yeah, once again, it's just the left really trying to advance a different narrative, looking at the really, really coarse, dark sides of human nature and uh, using it as an excuse to be depressed and wage war on freedom. But I think that those overtones are going to be a big subject for debate later on in January, February, and March as we get into this presidential preference primary contest, Matt. So, you know, as it as it stands right now, I think you and I both agree after a lot of evaluation, I think everybody agrees, that this contest really is down between Trump and someone else. The question is, who is the someone else? It looks like right now it's going to be either Trump and Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. It doesn't look like either Vivek, uh, Ramaswamy, or um, Chris Christie are going to get any traction whatsoever. You agree with that? I do. And the wild, I mean, we do have this unique system where we go state by state, which people, there's pros and cons to it, right? Some people think that's a good idea. Some people think it's a bad idea. I do like the aspect that I mentioned earlier, which is it gives candidates who are not as well-funded, it gives them an opportunity to do ordinary grassroots campaigning in a state, in a, in a small arena, and um, see if that is a way that their message can catch fire, if their profile and their candidacy can catch fire. So it's it's a um, evening of the field, so to speak. If you had a national primary, no one would be able to compete except for the ones who had the most money, which in this case would be you know just maybe two candidates. And um, so th- that aspect of it is really good. The interesting piece of it is that you have different personalities of these states. Iowa is a different place than New Hampshire. Uh, it seems like usually different candidates um, or one candidate won't necessarily be as strong in one state as the other. And uh, that can certainly change the momentum for candidates if one is to win in Iowa or come close to winning in Iowa. And then maybe that translates into better success in New Hampshire or then New Hampshire can kind of upend that. I think I read earlier that um, New Hampshire has a little bit better of a track record of picking the ultimate winner than Iowa does. But, uh, you know, that's not always the case. And I know when you were on the George W. Bush campaign, I mean, that that sort of early state formula was a big part of the uh, strategy, and it had a lot of impact in how that race went. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It always has an impact on the way things go. Well, let me say this. I think people get the Electoral College confused with the Republican or the Democrat nomination process. So for those of us uh, who maybe are less informed and want to kind of understand this, let me just walk through a couple of numbers. First of all, these primaries that we're having, they aren't really elections per se. An election is when a state has an election to determine who the actual elected official is going to be. A primary process is really something that the state does, paid for by a mixture of taxpayer dollars in the state of Florida, by the way. In other states, they do it differently. But a mixture of taxpayer dollars and Republican Party dollars or Democrat Party dollars to essentially put on a contest whereby that party can determine who their nominee is going to be or who their champion is going to be. So in Florida, our presidential preference process this year or our primary is going to be on March the 19th, and that will be just to see who we would choose to be our Republican nominee. That's all it is. Um, The Republican Party itself, the grand old party, the GOP, uh, will select uh, state by state 2,470 delegates to go to the Republican National Convention 
in August to determine who that Republican nominee is going to be. And that actually happens at the convention in person with delegates who have been authorized, empowered, whatever the right terminology is, to cast those votes, not necessarily the people of any of those individual states that send those delegates. That is 100% correct. Yeah, and, and I agree. It's not something that's obvious to a lot of the people out there. That that's literally what's happening. That's right. And what happens is, is that the presidential candidates in many of these states will put forth a preset slate of delegates. In some states, they don't have a preset slate of delegates, but the delegates are bound, meaning that whoever the voters or whoever the caucus selects, those caucus or those delegates are bound to vote for that person on the first at least three votes of the Republican National Convention. So it would be very, very unlikely for a presidential candidate to get to the convention and and be unsure if he were going to get the nomination. They're going to know by how many bound delegates that they have in their hand by the time they get there uh, if they're going to be able to win or not. So as we work through this a little bit, Matt, what I want to talk through is the process by which those delegates are, are bound, the process by which they're selected. Uh, we've got a really, really aggressive calendar coming up. And uh, believe it or not, Florida is going to be sort of deep in the calendar. They're not going to be right up there at the top. It's going to start with, of course, with the great state of Iowa, and uh, and then we'll go forth from there. But anyway, stick with us because in the next two segments, we're going to be talking about the early states, which will be Iowa, uh, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And then we will talk through the rest of the battleground states and how these delegates are selected to choose the next Republican nomination for president. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> and back again. America in View will be right back. From the front lines of the fight against socialism, it's America in View. All right. Happy Black Friday. We're talking about the Republican presidential preference primary process today. And Matt, let's just walk through the calendar really quickly. So the first contest will be in Iowa on January the 15th. That will be a caucus. The next contest will be a primary, which will be in New Hampshire on January the 23rd. And then Nevada will walk around. February the 8th, there will be a caucus, a Republican caucus in Nevada. And I'll talk in a minute, Matt, as to why many of the Republican presidential candidates are not participating in Nevada. Uh, then you've got the Virgin Islands that will go on the same day. Then South Carolina will, will come around on February the 24th, and that will be a primary. Generally speaking, when we talk about the early states and the early state strategy of this delegate selection process, we are referring to Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, and South Carolina. And uh, it has been historically true to assert that if someone cannot win or perform well in one of those early states, they typically never make it through the rest of the nomination process. Yeah, and usually these candidates are spending out their budgets. If they're if they're one of the lesser funded candidates, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. They can't afford not to spend their media budget on those early states. And so, yeah, I mean, if base after two or three states, you're probably out of money if you're not winning. Yeah, I can't tell you how many Republicans will sometimes say to me, oh my gosh, I can't believe uh, New Hampshire's voting. 
I thought that we were already done with this thing. This is after like the Iowa caucus where they'll say, well, I can't believe, you know, we'll say, well, we have an election coming up in Florida uh, in March. Well, I thought we already voted on that. And they'll be referring to the New Hampshire primary or the South Carolina primary. Sure. It does get very confusing. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about Iowa, it, it is a caucus. So even even within that world that you were talking about where everything's leading up to the Republican National Convention, even their caucus isn't really binding. It's almost like a um, um, almost like a poll of the people who are present while they're selecting who's going to be their um they actually end up having their primary vote later in the year, but the that initial caucus vote on January 15th is simply a reflection of where all those people are at that moment. In theory, when they get to their more binding vote, they could change their minds, but usually by that point, the contest is over. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right, Matt. And, and so New Hampshire does become the first primary, which is very important to their you know their their brand and their legacy. That is truly the first primary because the Iowa vote is a caucus vote. Mm-hmm. So here's here's the situation. So um, when you go into Iowa and you've been there before, Matt, you've been part of it. But when you go into the Iowa caucus, it's different from a primary from the standpoint that uh, everybody shows up in their local caucus precinct, whether it's done on a regional basis or a local basis, like we would our precincts here, and uh, everybody can show up. All the voters can show up. Or none can show up. Sometimes you might have emptier rooms. Each presidential candidate will have a representative there, whether it's the local farmer or whether it's a campaign worker or even a best friend of the candidate who may be from wherever. He could be from a foreign country. could come in and say, look, uh, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump or Nikki Haley is great because of X many reasons. I think you should cast their vote for them. They'll listen to all those speeches, and then they'll, they will basically vote that night at the caucus, and then those votes are tallied. That's essentially how the caucus is handled. Yeah, we um, we were there about 10 years ago and did some events up there. It's a, it's a very interesting process. I mean, it's actually reassuring or encouraging that politics still happens at that level and it, in that style because it is, I think, what most people – it's kind of a Norman Rockwell-type image of how politics should work. I think a lot of people have that experience in New Hampshire as well. Um, a lot of door-to-door, a lot of just traditional town hall style um, politics, which, of course, there's all kinds of paid media going on at the same time, um, digital and, and TV ads and mail and all the sorts of things that we associate with politics. But there is still that real um, you know, salt-of-the-earth kind of feel to a lot of the things that are happening in those early primary states. So, so after Iowa, essentially about a week later, actually it's a, eight days later, they'll go to, to the January 23rd primary in New Hampshire, which is an open primary. That means anybody can vote for anybody. It doesn't have to be slated as Republican or Democrat. Then on February 8th, there will be a Republican caucus in Nevada. But this is what's weird about Nevada this year. You want to talk about ballot integrity issues. So Nevada has tried to force all of their presidential candidates to participate in a primary system this year. The Republican Party has rejected that and is holding a caucus. So all of the voters in Nevada will have an opportunity to vote with a legitimate ballot, but the Republican Party of Nevada is saying they're not going to recognize that vote, and so they're going to choose their nominee on their, according to their rules, by a caucus, which is traditional. Because of that, there's only going to be a few people on the ballot 
the actual Republican primary ballot in Nevada, and people like uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump will actually be participating in the caucus, but hardly anyone is investing any money out there because there's a legal question about the validity of both. Yeah. So it's just a mess in Nevada. And this is this is kind of in theme with the whole move toward or the attempt to move toward the so-called jungle primary, right? Um, in which there's a attitude amongst uh, you know a certain segment of society that these primaries are inherently wrong and that there shouldn't be votes based on which party you belong to um you know and that's a debate for another day but you know to to have this state government basically trying to impose this system is um you know is ridiculous and it's almost like a game contested under protest uh where you just can't you can't go along with those rules if you want to stick up for the integrity of your party I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is to say that uh, these early primary contests are almost qualifier contests because people will spend all of their money, their campaign budgets, trying to perform well there. It's not that they couldn't continue on in the presidential process, but by the time they get through spending the millions of dollars in Iowa, like DeSantis and Trump are now, or spending the millions of dollars in South Carolina, if they don't perform well in those states, essentially donors aren't motivated to backfill that money, and so they don't have the gas to continue. Ironically enough, let me ask you this. How many delegates do you think are chosen in the early primary states? Not a ton. I mean, they're small states, and I and I can't remember the list off the top of my head, but I know some states do winner-take-all and some states do proportional. So right. with those states that fall under the proportional system – it can be very few um, delegates being awarded. So let me answer that for you. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, all four of them are proportional at some level. Okay? So it is possible. Now, for uh, New Hampshire as well as Nevada, there's a threshold. Like Nevada, you have to at least get 4% of the vote in order to be awarded any delegates. In New Hampshire, you have to get at least 10% of the vote. So the likelihood is, as it stands right now, DeSantis... Haley, probably Chris Christie, and DeSantis are the ones best poised to walk away with delegates out of New Hampshire. Maybe only three candidates, maybe four candidates would get delegates at all. That is correct. That's right. The rest, would I mean, they could have their name on the ballot, but it's not going to mean anything for them. But to go back and answer my original question to you, out of the early states, only 202 delegates out of the 1,236 that you need to get a majority are chosen in those first early primary states, okay? So it is possible if everyone else dropped out and it came down to a two-man contest, say, between Trump and DeSantis, and DeSantis had the money, that he could continue going on through Super Tuesday, the first big Super Tuesday, and try to win this thing later on in the process. But I think it would be very unlikely that any of these guys could continue if they don't at least have a good showing in one of these first four primary states. Yeah, and that was reinforced back, I forget which election it was, but uh, Giuliani, when he ran for president, had this theory that he was just going to wait for Florida. Florida was going to be an early, relatively early primary state that year, I think fifth maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, the strategy fell apart because there's a certain amount of momentum that is, is that attaches to your campaign with the results of these early states. So you might be able to wait maybe until South Carolina to have your big showing, mm -hmm. but for the most part, you've got to have a big showing early, and then that gives you the gas to keep going. But you're, you're exactly right about DeSantis. 
he could have the resources to um, outlast the other competitors and and wait until he's in the two sort of a two man contest later in the primary season. Yeah. So let me run through the rest of the states really quickly bef- between the early primary states and the big first Super Tuesday. It's Michigan, Idaho, Missouri, D.C. Who cares about D.C.? I wouldn't even campaign there. And then North Dakota. So only one, two, three, four major states, all of them being Western states that will occur before the big first Super Tuesday. When we come back out of the break, Matt, what I want to talk about is the impact of the first Super Tuesday on March the 5th, where 867 delegates are decided. And I just want to talk about the likelihood that anybody other than Trump and DeSantis can proceed after that. We'll catch you in the fourth segment. Stay tuned. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. Well, I was rolling down the road and some- Where we still don't understand the insanity of the woke. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Okay, folks, we're breaking it down for you. The presidential preference primary process, one of the least understood, but perhaps one of the most important things we do as voters in this country. Um, Brett, you've done a good job of walking us through the calendar right at the end before the break. We had got to Super Tuesday. Um, that's a big day. It's got a big name and it, it, um, will award, what did you say? 867 delegates, 867 delegates. And are those all winner take all states or, or is there a mix of proportionals in there? There is a mix of proportionals. However, some of the ones that are proportional, Matt, are smaller states. And so you'll end up like with Utah with a caucus, you'll end up with Alaska with a caucus. But listen to these big states that will be decided on Super Tuesday, Alabama, uh, Arkansas, rel- relatively small, but then you have California, you have Colorado, you have North Carolina, you have Tennessee, and then you have the great big mother load that you can pick up in Texas, um, Virginia. So, you know, when you get to Super Tuesday, you are going to get a trajectory at that point of either one main candidate with another straggler who possibly could try to pick it up in subsequent elections or subsequent uh, states, but essentially that's going to be the great determiner for everyone as to who the last two men standing are going to be. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and I'm trying to remember. I know in 2012 when Romney ended up ended up being the nominee, that contest went deep, a lot deeper than people thought. And then even in 2016, um, Ted Cruz went a lot deeper against Donald Trump than than people thought. Both of those contests went beyond Super Tuesday, but I think there became a growing sense that the eventual candidates who did not win were kind of on life support in those later states. Well, that's right. Remember, I talked about those what I would call sandwich states in between the early states and the big first Super Tuesday. So like uh, Michigan, Idaho, Missouri, uh, North Dakota, those states can definitely have what I would call an impact on momentum in between the early states and Super Tuesday. But coming out of Super Tuesday that night, you're going to have a good idea as to who the real players are and who aren't. And uh, there are two what I would call mini Super Tuesdays. They're exactly a week apart. So we have the uh, first big Super Tuesday on March the 5th. Then on March the 12th, you got Georgia, you got uh, Hawaii, you've got Mississippi, and you've got Washington that go on March the 12th. 
And then one week later, you get to Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Kansas, and Ohio. So between Florida, Ohio, Texas, and California being within 14 days, essentially, of each other, uh, you're going to have a good sense right there as to who the nominee is going to be. Now, the big question is, does Ron DeSantis, if he's able to edge Nikki Haley out in all these other early states and emerge as being the one guy who can be countered at Trump, can he stay in all the way to Florida? That's the big question that everybody wants to know, and I'm not sure we're going to know the answer to that until we get to Super Tuesday. Yeah, and that's the that's the play in a, in a crowded field is, is if you can last until it's a two-man contest, and then certainly you test the question of, of whether Trump's support is 50-plus or you know something under 50. I think that was definitely the Ted Cruz strategy in 2016, and what we found out is that people wanted Donald Trump. So I'm not sure how much that's changed since then. The dynamics are different. The narratives are different. Uh, Trump's popularity is very high right now amongst Republican voters. Um, There's all this legal question around Trump, which I don't think is going to hurt him with Republican voters, but you just don't know as you get into next year um, how how those dynamics are going to change. So we got to keep watching and see how it unfolds. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second, Matt. If you go to Real Clear Politics, they do a good job of sort of averaging out all the polls in some of these early states. So right now, as it stands nationally, which I would encourage everyone here not to pay attention to national polls, Trump is leading with almost 60% of the vote. DeSantis is in second place with almost 15. Haley is around 10%, and Ramaswamy's at almost 5, okay? Chris Christie's not even a blip on the radar screen. Does that get, does the aggregation there give an undecided category? <laughs> You're going to test my math skills, but the undecided is going to be about 15% is something like this right now. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, in Iowa, though, listen to this. Trump is at 47% on the aggregate, so he's running about 10 points lower in Iowa than he is nationally. DeSantis is up to about 18. Haley's sitting around 14, and... Uh, they still got Tim Scott on the ballot. Basically, no one else is even in the fray in Iowa. Okay, in New Hampshire, Trump is sitting about forty-five percent. Haley is at eighteen, almost nineteen percent in New Hampshire. Christie is almost at twelve percent in New Hampshire, and DeSantis is pulling around eight percent on the aggregate right now in New Hampshire. So that gives you a sense that there's going to be a little bit of what I would call some uh, shifting from Iowa to New Hampshire. And then, of course, coming back to South Carolina, that's going to be a very important state, I think, for the DeSantis campaign to be able to make the case that they're the ones to be able to continue. However, I think that they have to begin to undervalue or tell everyone not to pay too much attention to South Carolina because I just don't see how you're going to go into South Carolina now with both Nikki Haley being the only South Carolinian on the ballot and Tim Scott being off the ballot and say that you're going to outperform Nikki Haley in South Carolina. So. You know, even if DeSantis does well in Iowa, I think he needs to be pointing everyone to the more conservative states in the West, which are those sandwich states between the the early ones and Big Super Tuesday, and then to begin to focus people on his Super Tuesday effort um, in order to be able to make that case that he's the guy. Yeah, and and on the opposite side of that equation, obviously Haley is hoping to sneak by with a second place in Iowa. And then that launch performances in New Hampshire and South Carolina and, and just change that sense of inevitability about who the number two candidate is. She certainly has some of that good national polling that you're talking about that we probably should ignore, but she 
in some of the mainstream polls, she seems like she performs well against Biden. You know, just conventional wisdom, female candidate, female voters, all the sorts of things that would be um, assets for her in her candidacy. So it, you know, it could come down to just a couple percentage points in Iowa could change the trajectory of those narratives for the competing camps. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's some things, some issues that pop up along the way. Clearly, Haley's trying to take this more moderate tone in New Hampshire on the abortion issue, right? Which is going to hurt her in Iowa, but it helps her in New Hampshire. Uh, it's been interesting to see how all of these candidates have played the energy first policies and how they've played the ethanol uh, policy out in Iowa, because how you stand on ethanol can affect the way that you do in the caucuses. Um, I think what Haley's really hoping for is that she can finish a strong third in Iowa, set herself up for a second place in New Hampshire, and then do a second place in South Carolina, and then essentially try to consolidate everything to be the big anti-Trump going into Super Tuesday. Now, I do agree somewhat with what some have said, that if DeSantis does not do well in Iowa, it's going to be a rough six to seven weeks after Iowa for him. And uh, I'm, you know, I hope that they keep their money dry. I still think he's the best alternative to Trump. And if Trump was not in the race, DeSantis should be winning this thing outright. But the reality is, is that the map kind of favors Nikki Haley right now for a surge after Iowa. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, what did you just say, seven weeks until Super Tuesday. So, yeah, yeah, that time frame is, is challenging. And I'll tell you, when I was in Iowa last week, uh, one of the ads I saw was anti Ron DeSantis, trying to pin him against the wall on fracking, mm-hmm. um, saying that he's opposed to energy in America. It, I did not look up which pack was running the ad, but I'm assuming it was a Nikki Haley, um, you know, sponsored message. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. This, this Iowa vote is going to be pretty crucial. I thought that uh, Nikki Haley really made a blunder last week when she was talking about having everyone register for online social media yeah. uh, IDs. I thought that was disastrous for her. They've yeah. tried to reel that in pretty fast. How does that happen? I mean, is this is like a major policy idea. Does she just ad lib it, or had someone talked about it in a back room and said this was a good idea? What make, what makes Nikki Haley so good in debates is exactly what is her fatal flaw, which is she ad libs everything, and so she shoots off at the mouth. And I think she was shooting off at the mouth, trying to appeal to these uh, soccer moms who are frustrated by the out of control social media targeting our kids. And she just made a mistake. I mean, the the implications of what she said, if you really stop and think about it for two minutes, are really bad. But um, as we get into the end here, Matt, the big question is, why does Florida matter? Let me take you back on a quick history lesson. The Republican uh, legislature back in 2008 decided to move up the Florida primary so that they would uh, be able to um, be more important. Okay, At that point, the Democrat Party said, if you do this, your delegates in Florida aren't going to count. So the Republican legislature moved up the primary to be more important. They took their own penalty, but they killed off those Democrat delegates. Hillary Clinton won Florida. If she had taken those Florida delegates, she would have been the nominee in 2008 instead of Barack Obama. So these primaries are important. Regardless of what happens in the early states, you need to show up, you need to vote, and make your voice heard. Thanks for listening to another great edition, a Black Friday edition of American View. Matt, it's been a great day. I'm looking forward to next week. Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com.